wedding, Jim. But not as we know it. How dare you? on Friday the 27th of October 2023 and you are listening to the Bashcast. This evening's Bashcast, Tom recounts a 10-pin bowling evening that ends up in hospital, horse racing tips, ups and downs throughout the year, and optimising horses by odds band. Newcastle play Dortmund in the Champions League, and we look at edges in the player XG. A consultation on the bookie bashing bet tracker may be necessary. Does it do more harm than good? And we finish with the prisoner's dilemma as two advantage players in Las Vegas find a loophole in popular video poker machines. All of that and more coming up in this evening's Bashcast. Happy Friday evening to everyone. Looking forward to England versus Argentina later, as long as Henry Arundel for England doesn't get like five tries, then the pre-tournament Will Jordan top try scorer bet should come in. 9.0 at Smarkets when he was like a lay of 7.8 over in Betfair. It was great fun on a particular period before the tournament started um, when I think a couple of people had boosted him. Maybe it was just Fred. But um, uh, yeah, that looks locked and loaded. I think he's like two tries ahead of any New Zealander and three tries ahead of Henry Arundel. So I'm sort of praying, you know, can England win, but not Henry Arundel get a load of tries. And even if he does, Will Jordan's like 1.01 in some places. So cash in those slips. Um, but just a casual Friday night for me, unlike, I don't know, 20 years ago. What was it? 2006 when um, it was a Friday night when I was working for an asset management company in the a consultancy in the center of Birmingham. Very large multinational engineering firm. Coming up to Christmas, they just released a charity uh, calendar, the Ladies of Highways Engineering. Trust me, it was hotter than that sounds. Star of the show in the calendar, a girl called Jenny, who was working in the fifth floor. Uh, as I was coming up to Friday Night Beers, I was like, do you know what? I wouldn't mind you know, trying to chat that Jenny up. Um, so we went up to whichever pub that the whole office and all of the floors would descend upon on a Friday night. And honestly, it was carnage in those days. Those were the days where... You know, it was kind of smoking in the office and uh, like you would go for beers at a Friday lunchtime and you're probably still on them by the time it got to the end of play on Friday and then go for more beers. And it seems a lot chaotic in a very different world to the corporate world these days. A lot of fun, um, but not something I think I'm glad I did it when in my 20s and not in my mid 40s. So we head out for beers, tried it on, tried my luck with Jenny, didn't get very far. Um, she was more interested chatting to Tom Hall, who was the son of the director, Richard Hall. So she was like, she was chasing the money. She was a money grabber. I don't think she had any, 
I don't know. I don't know what happened between her and Tom Hall. Maybe I'll ask one day because um, I think the following week I sent her an email through the work email system and just said, by memory, something like, here's a picture of a duck. Do you want to go out on a date? Because I thought, like, do you want to go out on a date was a little bit formal and straightforward. So, of course, I had to accompany the email with a picture of a duck. And she replied that that was okay. And in town, in Birmingham, uh, at the town hall, there was the perfect date. It was a lecture from three-time hardcore heavyweight champion Mick Foley Mankind, the WWE wrestler who was involved in one of the most insane and infamous and never-to-be-repeated wrestling matches of all time. This is Mankind versus The Undertaker. A couple of quotes from that. Um, made it into folklore when the two of them climbed up the cage and then the Undertaker chokeslammed Mankind. The cage wasn't made meant to break, but it did, it gave, and then he fell however many feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, landed on the mat, sort of broke his shoulder, nose came out of his, a tooth came out of his nose. Commentator said something like, um, good God almighty, he's broken in half. And so he's in a world of pain. He's carried away from the ring on a stretcher with Terry Funk. And, you know, he's in a world of pain. He's dead. The guy's dead. But somehow, despite being dead, he gets off the stretcher. He's got all these broken bones, tooth coming out of his nose. He climbs back up the steel cage, sees The Undertaker. They start grappling again. The Undertaker slams him. He goes through the cage a second time. And Jim Ross, the commentator, shouts... Will somebody stop the damn match? And it's like perfect wrestling entertainment, perfect, you know, electrifying moves in sports entertainment, entertainment. So uh, Mankind, who is sort of is the character's Mankind, is Mick Foley's best-selling author, very erudite, charming individual on the New York Times bestseller list, intelligent, great guy. He's touring around giving lectures. So we went to the lecture at Birmingham um, City Hall to hear about what he had to say. And um, I don't know if the date went well or not, but uh, I think nine years later, we had a daughter uh, and 12 years later, we had a son. And having a son is the best thing in the entire world because now I get to do some wrestling um, but it's like, because he's so small, I'm the big show and he's like Rey Mysterio, like, um, um, which is more fun than you can ever imagine. He knows all the phrases. He knows, good God almighty, he's broken in half. And um, will somebody stop the damn match and things like that. He's allowed to swear for the, those little little tidbits. You know what I mean? So um, that's great fun. And over time, we've honed our wrestling. I've um, I've taught him the clothesline. I've taught him the Undertaker's choke slam. I've even taught him the Spinner Rooney and the DDT Stunner. Um, but last night we sort of moved away from wrestling uh, into well, we invented ten pin bowling. And you might say, well, Tom, you did not invent ten pin bowling. There have been ten pin bowling alleys around the world for decades, and technically you're right. But last night, we invented a form of 10-pin bowling where we have these sort of polished wooden floorboards in the living room. 
And so if I put like a bowling glove on, which was like a big slipper boot, and then I grabbed Ewan, I could slide him along the floor as the bowling ball, bowling ball Ewan, and he could crash into some pins which we made out of various water bottles, plastic water bottles that he takes into school to drink his water out every day. And I was quite surprised at how far I could launch him. He got, I got, I could get some purchase and he could fly and it was way more fun than we initially thought it ever would be. So after a couple of runouts, um, we got mum and we got his older sister and we invited them down to see this new game that we had invented. And now we had an audience and because we had an audience, I won't lie, I may have had a little bit of adrenaline going on. And so I grabbed my boy, my five-year-old boy, and I set the pins up and I went, check this out. And I went to launch him down the living room and I launched him a little bit hard. And whilst I got the strike, he went through the pins and his head crashed straight into the wooden leg of the cupboard that sits in the corner of the room. And he took it like a trooper, I'm not going to lie. He's only five years old. He didn't make too much of a fuss, but when I lifted him up and put him on my lap and put my hand on his head, right on the crown of his head through his hair, I lifted my hand up and my hand was covered in red blood. So I went to get... um, some towels and a bandage and some water from the kitchen and came back and I'm like, his hair had turned red. And like normally if he can see it, he gets really upset, but he couldn't see this. So he didn't seem concussed. They did a little check, but there was way more blood coming from this cut right on the temple, right on the top of his head than I was comfortable with. And it was one of those, I could see the cut and you're like, oh, do you know what? Like on a rugby pitch, he'd be off the pitch with that. Um, So we're going to have to go and get that looked at so which was a little bit of a shame because we were about to go out for two for one pizza up in the um up in the pub near the supermax prison um and so we went down to um the local minor injuries unit it wasn't quite enough for a and e i didn't think also actually the minor injuries unit is a lot faster than a and e so it was like win-win anyway um because it's like loads quieter um you know a and e on a bloody friday night <sighs> you don't minor injuries unit even if it's a major injury top tip for you so i went in checked in so the four of us mum jen me you and his sister are sitting in the waiting room and then we're called in so me and you and go in and then we sit down and then the doctor lady's like so tell me what happened and it's like well you can't make this up and by the way first thing is that like she's like are you dad yeah, does he live with mum yes yes is there any social services no no social services restrictions or anything like that and she's like, tell um, tell me what happened. And I'm like, I've just told you that there are no social services involved with Ewan, you know? So don't make me tell this story. And um, I'm kind of hesitating. And she says to Ewan, why don't you tell me what happened? And he's kind of staring at her. And he doesn't want to tell the doctor what happened because he's like, it's telling on his dad. And I'm like, well, you know, it's pointless lying. I better just tell the doctor what happened. So... Okay, so we were 10-pin bowling, but Ewan was the 10-pin bowling ball, and I was using him as a 10-pin bowling ball, and I was sliding him along, and I slid him into the leg of the wooden furniture in the room, and he cracked his head at the top of it. And that was an awkward conversation. Anyway, it wasn't enough for stitches. That's the good news. There was a lot of blood, but little boys' skulls bleed quite heavily. He had to get it glued up, um, 
And the good news was we were able to get out of the hospital and over to the Supermax and then to the pub next to the Supermax. Um, and we were there at 6.58 p.m. when two-for-one pizzas end at 7 o'clock. And so it was win, win, win. Genuinely, if I'm sounding flipping, he is okay. Honestly, as well, I feel terrible. But also, this it was it was kind of a, like his first big wrestling injury that resulted in hospitalization. And that's like, that's a moment in life, isn't it? Isn't it? Gambling and chat. And gambling and chat. So horse racing is dead, unfortunately. The game is over, um, which is a shame because um, horse racing was really good for a long period of time. I mean, it's not really dead. It's just um, it appeared like that to a number of people, so much so that the conversation started appearing that horse racing was dead, both in terms of volume, but mostly in terms of profit. And so we were... We were asked to have a look at it. And I, instead of, I, I mean, I maybe do have a certain instinct to roll my eyes, but I also kind of want to know what's going on. Um, My prophets certainly marry the a sort of weird variance landscape that we've had this year, where there's certain amounts of profit at the beginning of the year, tailed off a little bit, got better, got worse. More of a roller coaster this year than usual. So we were asked to have a look at, you know, is it still profitable? Essentially, that was the answer. That was that was the question. So I've had a look at the horse racing tracker because maybe we can sort of hone strategies from doing this. But the important thing when looking at any of these analyses is to separate signal from noise. Um, and there can be a lot of noise in this, despite the sample size. So I really, I looked at, BB Algo horses only. Horses that, you know, we're calculating early in the day when there's no liquidity in the morning. Now, um, in this analysis, I only looked at unique horses, meaning if a horse was plus EV at Bet365 and Betfred, I only would look once. And there was no kind of rhyme or reason to which one I would pick. It certainly wasn't the highest EV because that would be cherry picking. Um, it was more the first time it was logged, which could be any single one of them. These are manually logged once a day from the tracker. How many have we had across six bookmakers? Bet365, Betfred, William Hill, Ladbrook, Skybet, and Paddy Power. How many have we had in total up until the middle of September? I know it's the late October, but, you know, we sort of ended the data collection period then, did the analysis, and it's taken this long to talk about it. How many did we have? We had um, 18,460 unique horses. You know, that's like... I don't know how many days of the year that would be. Maybe, say, 260-odd days. So 70-odd horses a day. It's a lot of horses. Sample size of 18,460. So the first thing's first. Um, there is no bog included in this. And there are some non-runners. How many non-runners? Not a lot, but some. So if we discount bog... We're maybe under-reporting unless a lot of these bookmakers aren't offering it. In which case, we're over-reporting a little bit. Um, why haven't I taken the non-runners out? Because it, I don't have the data. It's a logistical nightmare. We did a reality check. Um, you know, 
we know we, the, the amount of difference between the ROI due to non-runners from the you know the prices that we've recorded here that you don't necessarily get is in a fraction of a percent difference of ROI Le- way less than one okay so unless the ROI is less than one percent we don't need to worry that we're profitable so what's the ROI over the year six percent right so 6.041 percent on BB algo slightly higher than default using the exchange um What's the real ROI? Five point something. Just don't know five point what, but it's not negative. Okay. Um, and then factoring bog, it probably goes higher than 6.041 if if you get bog. So that's the first thing, right? So the second thing is, so one, is it profitable? It is profitable. Over 18,000 horses. The second thing is, um, has it been profitable consistently over the year? So I had a look at four-week periods over the year and over a four-week period it's always profitable now there are certain weeks where it's been unprofitable and the sample size is there in the 400s the fourth year week of the year minus 0.1 percent and the 15th week of the year minus 1.7 percent a couple of weeks later minus 2.38 percent a couple of weeks later minus 2.8 percent it was really rough 23rd week of the year minus 8 percent so there are definitely weeks where it has been unprofitable, but over a four-week prof- period, always profitable. Um, sometimes pretty much zero. Actually, apologies, the 14th week of the year, it was unprofitable. It was minus 0.2%. So what's the average over the year? The average of the year is 6%. It has been as high over a four-week period as 12%. Right at the beginning of the year, January through to February, middle of February, was a really good period. 12%, 11%, 10%, three weeks in a row. This is a four-week period. Good ROI. Tailed off to the average 6%. Late March, early April, things were getting seriously dry, down to slightly negative, break-even, 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 2% again. Come the 18th week of the year, which would be late, uh, the beginning of April, May, and then started to climb all the way back up to 10%. And the 10% would have been 2nd of July. And then again, it started to tail off. It started to tail off to 4%, 3%, 2%, 2%, 1%, 1%, 1% all the way to the middle of September. So really swingy, like more swingy than usual. Why is it profitable some weeks and not? It's all down to who wins. Sometimes negative EV horses win. That just happens. A lot of favourites win. Generally, favourites aren't plus EV. Um, The recreational punters are betting on them. Um, So the bookmakers tend to offer quite rubbish prices. They're not necessarily that good on the place component, for sure. So um, it has tailed off. And... Between the 30th week of the year, which was the 23rd of July, and the 38th week of the year, we were looking at like 1% ROI towards the end of that period, which is probably why people are turning around and saying, is it still profitable? And it's just big swings. You know, nobody was asking this in mid-February, early March. Nobody was asking this in um, sort of the late June, middle of June, late May. But there are periods where three, four weeks go on and we're looking at hundreds of horses in that period of time 
um, you know, 1,700-odd, 1,800-odd horses in a four-week period. And it's just not returning a lot. And those are the kind of sample sizes we have to deal with. Um, there's also been the question of, is it dying in terms of volume? So that's an interesting one. How many horses do we find plus EV under the BB algo at any given time on average a day? And the answer is 489. 489, that's in a a weekly period, okay? Um, So every four weeks, sorry, every week, on average, there are 489 plus EV horses. Now, at the beginning of the year, when we were doing quite well, actually, it was down at 350, 370, something like that. And then the peak in the middle of the summer was 600. So there's no correlation between volume and ROI there because both of those areas were high ROI. Then the very highest was the 25th week of the year where we had nearly 700 plus EV horses per week. Um, And then it tailed off from the end of June through July to 500, through to August to 400, through to the middle of September, 371. And again, you get, well, the volume's died off, so is it dying? And in all honesty, honesty, it did continually reduce from the middle of July up to the middle of September, but that's just a two-month period. It also increased from two months before July up to a peak in the middle of July. In fact, it's still, you know, a third more plus EV horses just now than it was in February. So the volume goes through these cycles. It depends on the number of runners in a race and things like that. So I'm not worried too much about volume. I'm not worried too much about ROI. Uh, I do note that the ROI is more swingy than usual, but those that's the nature of betting on horse racing. So what about by odds band, which was a member request that we have a look at how ROI is performing by odds band. And again, you've got to slightly think about what's signal, what's noise. So I split the odds bands up. And I split them up, tried to make equal number of horses sample size in each odds band, right? So the odds bands are quite funny there. Um, there's roughly 800. I did like 20 bands, right? So there's roughly 800 horses in each band. Um, and that's all horses up to 5 to 1 at the first band, 822 there. And then like 11 to 2 to 6 to 1. And then exactly 13 to 2 was its own band, 7 to 1 to 15 to 2. 8 to 1 to 72, and then exactly 9 to 1, exactly 10 to 1, 11 to 1, 12 to 1, 14 to 1, 16 to 1, 18 to 1, 20 to 1. Like every um, interval of odds band between 9 to 1 up to 25 to 1 just was large enough to be it on its own. And then banded 28 to 1 to 30 to 1, 33 to 1 to 35 to 1, 40 to 1, 51 and 66 to 1 and over. So what I'm looking for is an overall pattern as opposed to individual bits of weirdness so here's an individual bit of weirdness that i think we can discount look at nine to one um and you've got 728 horses so it's good enough for sample size and just looking at nine to one we have an roi of two percent 
um, and 10 to 1, 2%, and 11 to 1, 2%, and 12 to 1, 2%, and 14 to 1, minus 6%, and 16 to 1, 8%, and 18 to 1, 1%. So what's happening here? Like that minus 6% or 5% for 14 to 1? What does that tell us? Nothing. That's definitely a little bit of noise. There's quite a lot of similarity of ROI all the way through 8 to 1 to 12 to 1, and then 14 to 1 is mega negative. 1,166 horses, that's just noise. That's not that's something you can discount. On the flip side of the coin, like quite good ROI from 16 to 1, 7%, 18 to 1, 10%, 20 to 1, 25%. 22 to 1, minus 3%. Why are we getting like 8%, 10%, 24%, and then minus 3% for exactly 22 to 1? Does that mean that we ignore 22 to 1 horses? No, it doesn't. Not when 16 to 1, 18 to 1, 20 to 1 is so profitable. Again, that's a little bit of noise. So I'm generally looking for overall patterns. And what stands out for me? There's some consistency between 11 to 2 and 15 to 2 where we're getting over 10% ROI, nearly 15% for each band. Between 8 to 1 and 12 to 1, we're getting between 0 and 5%. And then it grows again from 16 to 1 all the way up to 35 to 1, nearly as high as 25% before tailing off again. The tails, the very short odds and the very long odds, seem to be performing a little bit worse. Um, negative for less than 5 to 1, just negative. I mean, it's minus 0.3%. So, I mean, it could easily have been plus 0.3%, but just negative for up to 5 to 1 and 3.5% for over 66 to 1. So, overall, we're looking at 6%. I think maybe you could say that there is a sweet zone from this data set. 11 to 2 up to 15 to 2 looks good. And then... Perhaps the middle ground, the double digits, the early double digits horses perform slightly worse. And then going forward 20 to 1 up to 50 to 1, it sort of recovers at that period and then tails off at 66 to 1 or not. You might want to implement a strategy where you didn't bet up to 5 to 1, but you then you've got to consider variance as well. Um, there's a lot more volatility when you're looking at higher odds horses. Horses that are 100 to 1, that are one fifth odds are only going to place once in every 20 times if they're neutral EV. Once every 20 times. That's quite a lot of races before one of them those comes in, right? So I think a lot of people do eliminate 66 to 1s and over for variance reasons. I don't, although uh, a runner once would go into the shop and happily do a lucky 15 and put four 100 to 200 horses into that lucky 15. That's great, but the amount of volume we need to get down is quite significant for that kind of thing. And then he t talked about it. It was like, would you like me to throw a low odds horse in there? And I was like, do what you do, but maybe don't make the average 100 to 1 across the entire slip. Um, I, th I think really a sweet spot, honestly, looking at the data. You know, if, 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 you could, if you really wanted to filter it down and just did 11 to 2 up to 15 to 2, you'd have cleaned up this year. Um, but, you know, all horses are plus EV. I wouldn't ignore 14 to 1. I wouldn't ignore... 22 to 1 and things like that and make sure when looking at these analyses we're not just picking a subset of like 600 horses and then saying well that's enough to tell me that i'm not going to bet because unfortunately 
six to hundred horses at twenty five to one isn't enough data to tell us if we're gonna bet or not. Stick them in the um in the variance calculator on bookiebashing.net, which we just found a rounding error at extreme odds on, by the way. So somebody sort of shared a screenshot of the variance calculator where they put on some pretty extreme odds and then neutral EV, and then over a lot of simulations, they were down. So what the hell's going on there? And it, all it was was that at the extreme odds, we need to be calculating to more decimal points, more significant figures for a realistic simulation. Um, but... That got patched, so I think it was quite a, an unusual bug that required a particular, a very particular setup. On that subject, stay around for some guys that found a very unusual bug that required a particular setup on some video poker machines over in Las Vegas that essentially allowed them to print money. <laughs> A lot of football recently, and I've been hitting a lot of football as well. Um, my transition has very much been away a little bit, so much from the game centre to player XG, so away from secondary goal markets into player markets because I'm finding a lot more swinginess in the markets, in player markets, maybe a lot more recreational players there and therefore trying to be sharper towards the wrecks is easier than being sharper towards the shops, which I'm, I'm sort of finding, you know... Unless you find, I mean, there's still some value in the um, um, game center, and it can be decent. It's just more harder to find, if you like. Um, one of the things we've just released a tool. I haven't really announced it, but it is available to everyone. It's on the drop down the tools with historical scores and scorers. So you can go into this, and you can find uh, the scores of games. You can find who scored. You can find the minute that they scored in. Yellow cards who started, things like that. It's all available. There are some blanks, and I don't know the reason around why certain games are blanks, like Leeds-West Ham at the beginning of the year. Um, the, the developers suggested it's a name mismatch, but I feel like Leeds versus West Ham isn't a name mismatch, so we need to interrogate what's going on there. But most games have data, right? So whilst it's not a comprehensive data set yet, it's going to be. We're going to fix that. And it's got loads of data to do reviews just, just now. So first thing is fix the gaps, find out why. Second thing is match all the results up to the data we have in the archive tool so that we can see, you know, when we are, certainly when we're coming up with first goal scorer or any time goal scorer that's different than the exchanges or compare it to the best book or something like that where the particular edges are at the bookmakers and the exchanges given, you know, we've got thousands, tens of thousands of results for players to score goals, to score two plus goals, three plus goals, to score first. So we can start merging all of that up. So just now that tool is just the games. It's not every game and it's the score and it's the score is. And go and have a look at it now if you want to go and have a look at it. Then you can only like download a week's worth of data at a time just because it's like big data set. That's why. So you can chunk it up. It takes a bit of time to get a year's worth of data out. Sorry about that. Anyway, I've been betting a lot on um, the, the players. I have found some edges in the... Um, in the secondary goals markets markets with the game centre. One of the stranger ones, I was looking at Wales-Gibraltar, which is always a game where you've got to be careful where one team has such a tiny XG because now you're at the limits of modelling, especially modelling that relies on sort of historical patterns to project current situations. And there's not that many goals or games historically where teams have as few goals as Gibraltar did in a friendly against Wales. But one of the things 
I did notice is I made the any other home win in the correct score market um, just a shade under evens. So like, you know, in the correct score market goes from 0, zero to 3-3 three, three, and then you got the three other markets of any other home, any other away and any other draw. So basically I'm saying it's going to be 4-0 or any other result with Wales winning with four scoring four goals or more. Um, that's kind of like, I don't often find edges around that, but that's one of those that crops up occasionally with these mad games, right? So given the XG of Wales, I just had that, you know, any other home win a little bit better than the exchanges, which had 2.26. So I had that. And also, I didn't think it'd go, but I had Kiefer Moore to score two or more goals in the game, all the way down at 5.5, starting up front for Wales. Now, it was a weird game for me because um, it started at 7.45 and I was at home with the kids and I was on my own. And so um, I listened to a little bit of the first half and then I went to do the kids' bedtime and I came downstairs just at the start of the second half. First thing I saw was Kiefer Moore had been substituted. So I was like, brilliant. So I should have figured that out before the game because it was a friendly. They had a load of players that were going to make their debut for Wales. It was in Wrexham. I was like, what am I thinking? Like in terms of expected playing time for Kiefer Moore, it certainly wasn't 45 minutes. And so my maths would have been off. I don't recall what the fair odds were, but I'm pro it was probably a negative EV bet if I'd thought about it, if I'd thought about the playing time of Kiefer Moore. Then the second thing I saw is that Kiefer Moore had scored twice between when I went upstairs to bedtime and coming back downstairs. And then the third thing I noticed was that Wales had two other goals and it was 4-0 and, you know, it wasn't going to finish a draw and a away win. And so both bets came in. <laughs> so who you are for me. Um, and then there was a night, I don't know, a couple of um, a couple of weeks ago where I went quite big on um, a Serie A match, which I don't have in front of me just now. But it was the combination of... Um, the, uh, Fiorentina to win an over 2.5, Fiorentina to win an over 3.5, Fiorentina to win an over 4.5, and Fiorentina to win and both teams to score were all value. And I just went for it. I just, one of those where I was like, there was enough value there to max bet that. And um, Fiorentina did, I think, get a very late goal to trigger every single one of those coming in. Who were they playing? Let's just do a little results thing. Fiorentina, just to tie this up. Must have just been over two weeks ago because I've just got my results in front of me and it didn't come in there. Fiorentina results. <coughs> Napoli was three one. Yeah, I'm gonna re I'm gonna sort of reverse what I was saying. I wasn't on the over four point five, but I was on the two point five, three point five. Both teams scored on the one point five. That was the that was the trilogy I was on. I would ordinarily edit this out of the bashcast. Can't be bothered just now. We also had um, England Italy, which was quite a nice game because. Um, um, England to win and both teams to score at 4.5 England to win and over 2.5 at 3.05 those sort of combinations it's quite nice when those come in um, and if you're Newcastle to win and over anything in any match <laughs> they seem to all be coming in this season but other than those it's been mainly any time goal scorer and first goal scorer and getting them both in the same match is quite good Um Torres last night, Barcelona versus Shakhtar Donetsk. Uh, first goal score at 6.8, anytime goal score at 2.6. Um, uh, and 
had a whole bunch in the Galatasaray Bayern Munich match. Kane, Coman, Nakadi. Um, there was one other, and so I had four players, and three of them came in. But overall in football, I'm about three percent down over about 225 bets, and that's fine under various simulations. So even though I'm talking about these winners, I could talk about more losers. But talking about losers isn't much fun. But actually, let's just do it because I looked at this one particular one in detail uh, and I wrote a blog about it and it's under latest news and I posted this blog and video before the game kicked off. In fact, many hours before team news and this bet lost. And I feel like I talk about winning a little bit too much. So let's talk about this losing. And this is a max bet loss for me as well. Um, So... This was Newcastle versus Dortmund in the Champions League. Cannot believe, couldn't believe my eyes when I saw that Newcastle were like 1.68 and um, Dortmund were 6-1 to or 5-1, to 6.0. It's like, that's insane for Newcastle in the Champions League against Dortmund. And it was insane in hindsight. Um, I'm going to try and find this game on who scored. Do who scored have the expected goals? For the players in the match, um, when you look at their stats, I don't know the answer to this, but let's have a look at it. I know that flash scores give you expected goals for the team, but I don't know if um, who scored do. So you go to who scored, you go to match centers, you go to player statistics. I know you get shots on target. Oh no, they don't do an XG. But I mean, um, shots on target, Jalinton got one, Almiron got two. Isaac got one. Anthony Gordon got one, but he had four shots on total. So three were off target and one were on. That was pretty comparable to um, Dortmund. Same number of shots. In fact, one more shot for Newcastle than Dortmund, and Dortmund won that. One nil. It was heart-wrenching watching it because you kind of thought Newcastle were just going to seal their group to go through. Um, According to flash scores, if I go to stats, the XG of both teams was... 1.99 1.99 for Newcastle, 1.05, sorry, other way around, 1.99 for Dortmund, 1.05 for Newcastle. I was watching it, and I would have put the XG for Newcastle higher, but maybe I'm biased. What I find interesting about this game um, was the price of Anthony Gordon. Now, I'm looking at this at lunchtime early afternoon, and he's 5.1, 5.2 in the exchange. And I'm kind of like, Anthony Gordon's going to be... Up front, maybe one of the three strikers alongside Isaac and Almiron. And he's playing in a team where they're expected to get two goals in the match against a team that's going to get one goal in the match. So you've got to allocate two goals to the Newcastle outfield 10. So we're going to give 9% of the goals, so 0.18, to the substitutes. So we've got... 1.8 1.8 goals, 1.82 goals to divide amongst the Newcastle team. Now, at 5.1, 5.2, that suggests a 19% chance of a goal. It's an XG of 0.21. Now, we've got 1.8 goals to divide amongst the team, but the starting 10. So, what are we saying here? Are we saying that... What's 0.2 into 1.8? Um, 5... Are we saying one-ninth of the goals in that game are going to go to Anthony Gordon? That's no, we're not. Like, there's 10 outfield players. Newcastle are going to score 1.8 goals for their outfield starting players with 0.2 for their substitutes. 
If he's 5.1 to get a goal, that means he's getting one-ninth of the goals that the outfield 10 players are getting. And Antti Gordon is starting up front for Newcastle and he's got three goals in eight games in the Premiership this year. It's just wrong. So let's get our investigative sleuth going on. Why is it wrong? Why could it be wrong? What's going on? First thing, it's an exchange price before team news. So we have to factor in playing time and risk of not starting. And this is where you need some kind of knowledge about football, about expected lineups. So I'm looking at everywhere around. He's not injured. He's in every expected lineup. He's been starting every game for Newcastle. He's a key striker. So, well, left wing, but he's starting up front. He's going to start. <clears throat> My assertion is he's going to start. So I don't think, I think there's very minimal risk of him not starting. I think his playing time is up there at an average amount of playing time for a starting player. Probably even better than most because he's a high-performing player for Newcastle. So is there any other reason why we're justifying him getting one-ninth of the goals of 10 players outfield? That 10 players that include Dan Byrne, Fabian Shaw, Kieran Trippier, Jamal Lascelles, these guys that never get goals? Doesn't make any sense. You look across the board of the bookmakers, they're priced up 2.88 to 3.1, quite a narrow range. And then Bet and uh, Unibet can be grouper up at 5. They've even boosted him to 5.5. You then look at Smarkets and you see that on the anytime goal scorer, the only person traded is um, is our man, Anthony Gordon. So is that why his price is inflated on the exchange? What do we make it if we just take the 10 players and we normalize their XG? So I tried to do those maths. And I'd double the amount of XG for Anthony Gordon. I'd like over 0.4, not 0.2. And that then would have had his price down nearer three than five, okay? And there was a lot of money available at five, and it was quite liquid at 5.1 and 5.2. So I went max stakes on him. I, went, uh, I managed to get him first goal scorer. I even went in two plus as well, but really it was the anytime goal scorer that I went for. Recorded the video, stuck it up. And I'm like, if he doesn't start and he comes on in the 85th minute, so be it. I take the risk. It's me, you know what I mean? It's my money. Uh, I made it very clear in the blog and the video that if you're listening to me, you have to take responsibility for that risk. He was in the starting lineup, and by the time it got to kick off, his AGS price had dropped to 3.6. I think his closing line was 3.9, but it did bounce as low as 3.6. So your 5.2, your 5.3 was just an amazing price at that time. And then... We need some validation on the pitch. And of the starting 10, um, there were one, two, three, four, eight shots on goal. And Anthony Gordon got half of them. He got four. There were two shots on target. Anthony Gordon got both of them. I mean, Callum Wilson did come on and get a shot on target, but we're just looking at the starting 10. Can't really account for AGS and two plus and three plus on substitutes. And so... Of all the bets that I've placed on golf and football this year, this was probably my bet, my best bet. It was my favorite. It was my max stakes. I actually probably pushed my max stakes a little bit far. I even stuck my neck out and um, recorded the video and said his price was wrong. I even got just a little bit of feedback saying, you can't just say that you know more than the people that are liquidating the exchange. And I felt quite confident that 
the people liquidating the exchange were wrong in the prices that they were offering and they were kind of not offering an efficient and reasonable price. And that's what transpired. And at the end of all of that, goodness gracious, he should have got a couple of goals in the first half. The keeper was on fire and he didn't get a goal in the game and my max bet did lose. But despite the fact that it lost, give me that bet one million times over in the same game and I will be sailing off into the sunset, eating all of the cheeseburgers. Gambling and chat. I've been sent a screenshot from a Discord server. I don't know which one. I think it's the unabated one, but I don't know. Unabated is the American... Um, sort of intelligent sports betting subscription service. A little bit like the American, I don't know, maybe the American bookie bashing. I don't think there's anywhere near, well, no, I know there isn't anywhere near as much content um, on, on Abated in America, but they've got very much a less mature betting market over there. But you can get some betting edges. You can get betting calculators, a lot of this you can get on bookie bashing, even for the American sports, to tell you the truth. They really concentrate on NFL uh, and basketball. Um, uh, I think they scrape a load of live odds, so they've got all the issues with that. And uh, they come up with some fair odds themselves. Um, it's $199 a month, which is £169 a month. So it's, you know, it's less content for 50% more. Um, but then American economics work differently to UK economics, don't they? So don't hold that against them. Things will be more expensive over there. Like their cheeseburgers and all of their buffets that they have to have at breakfast time. So this is run by Captain Jack, Rufus Peabody, and Peter Jennings. And by the way, I did reach out to Unabated. said, you know, fancy just having a chat with you being the American Unabated and us being the British bookie bashing Never got back to me. Never got back to me, if you're listening, which you're not. You didn't get back to me. Captain Jack um, is replying to somebody on this Discord server. He's replying to Spartans Rock 24. Can't see all of Spartans Rock 24's comment that Captain Jack is replying to. All I can see is a sort of preview of his comment where he says, We've all been patient. We're over halfway through the CFB. I will continue to subscribe to unabated, just comma, comma, comma. So don't know what he was doing there. The CFB is the uh, college basketball over in America. Captain Jack replies, do you want me to go into a deep dive of all the components that go into this? The ingestion engines, how many updates are processed every second, the service architecture behind the site, we don't owe that to you. We owe you a service that works as intended and we're working on that. Trust me, this team is beyond fucking burned out. They work seven days a week and sometimes 18 to 20 hours per day trying to get things perfect. But it's impossible to simulate an issue that only happens when there is an influx of games. I've been warned that my next outburst to customers will be my last. This company has investors and things would be much easier without me flying off the handle. So I'm done getting frustrated in front of you guys. The engineers will have everything back up shortly once they find out what's clogging up the pipes today. However, you won't have me to kick around anymore. 
Oh, Captain Jickles. Uh, I mean, he's lost it there. And I don't... Look, I don't know what happened. And also, I kind of get that when you're paying for a service and things aren't as expected, then you can get a little bit antsy. Someone did a comparison. If you log on to Netflix and you try and load a video and it doesn't work, you're going to get pretty mad at Netflix. That's very true. Netflix, of course, you expect it to work with the size of the budget they have. And in all honesty, streaming video might not be as complicated as some of the stuff that unabated or bookie bashing are doing. And Captain Jack shouldn't lash out and be so defensive and snappy at his customers. But in all honesty, I get it. And I have done very much the same myself. Um, sometimes, I don't know if this is pulling violin strings, but it's where my perspective comes from that when you're trying to manage something and it doesn't work as expected, um, then you can very much feel like a cornered bear trying to sort of manage it, deal with it, and explain it. And then there's another thing about the Discord forum where... Um, you're not held to the same standard. So when discussing particular mathematics and edges, I would do it in the past on the forum. But I'm not held to the same standard when people are paying from for a subscription from a company that I manage because I have to get it right. Um, and I can't hypothesize as much, which is difficult for my background, which came from research and development through academia. Um like a seven-year postgraduate research project where you could explore some stuff and you were expected maybe you explore and you get wrong and you explain why. We can do that in sports betting. So the only way that it works for us is that we have to have data to back up anything that we're hypothesizing and results. So I can, for example, go, here's an edge on shots on target. And then time goes by and I can show that the expected number of shots on target that we predicted over a period of time was completely in line using our model with the number of recorded shots on target. We're talking about tens of thousands of data points here. And so we can justify that. And yet it takes one person on the forum to go, it's all bullshit. And they don't need the data. And they just say, it's all bullshit. Or one person saying, the only thing that you can do with the bookie bashing lines is lay them because they're all wrong. You know, and that's it. That's a throwaway comment. Show me your 12,000 data points that shows that. You can't because you're held to a different standard. And so over time on a Discord forum, I found it particularly difficult. There are things that you can do and things that you can't do. And essentially, you can't get into any discussion about anything. Any discussion about things working, about edges, we do. We push people to use support because open conversation doesn't work. Um and sometimes it can feel like there's one or two of us having one side of a conversation and a lot of people sort of cornering us on another side of the conversation. And it made me come across very defensive sometimes in the past. Um, and I, I can see Captain Jack having exactly the same thing, having the, exactly the same knee-jerk reaction. And here, obviously, something wasn't working this particular day in Unabated. So something similar recently... Um, so we pull back from the forum and if we're tagged, we try not to answer them, but we do have support. One of the tickets that came in recently, it was a um, it was a user request. And the user request was simply on this Saturday morning to fix the constant issues with the site. Um, uh, and the comment was constant issues almost every day with stale odds. 
Now, this particular morning, what had happened was that our feed provider uh, sometimes takes his odds from different sources. One of those sources that our feed provider, so this is almost like a secondary route of information that we're now in. It's not just, it's not us, it's our feed provider, but it's not our feed provider. It's where they're getting the odds from. For Coral and Ladbrokes, that had gone stale. It had gone stale through to our feed provider and gone stale through to us. And so we have to do this reverse engineering of where is the information going wrong? And then can we switch over to reading it from somewhere else? If we read it straight from the site, very often we just get blocked quite quickly of scrapers. Imagine you've got to read the odds of every horse in every race, every meeting at Coral and Ladbrokes and all the other bookmakers. And then as the bots are doing this every few seconds, sometimes the site might notice that it's not a human being reading the odds. It's a bot and they just block it. And we don't immediately notice. There are some sites that are very clever in blocking bots and we don't even know we're being blocked. I think something Bet365 does is that the page can go a little bit blank, but not blank enough that the bot realizes that something's happened. And so things go stale all the time. It's a cat and mouse game that we try and keep stable um, and always throwing attention at it when we notice it. But there'll never be a situation or a case where we can just always read the odds live all the time. Um, I think it's things have drastically improved, and especially with such a small team that we have, when you look at your odds monkeys and your profit accumulators with the teams of 30 and 40 IT, I've no idea how many are unabated, but I imagine the same. With bookie bashing, you're looking at an IT team of like one to two, maybe three, when we need super emergency help. And you know what happens if something goes wrong when someone's down the supermarket picking up some food. So things can happen like that. Um, and... I, I appreciate it's frustrating sometimes loading up the tracker. I saw a, there was another forum post that was shared with, where was it? I can't, uh, no, I don't remember the name of the forum, but somebody was asking about bookie bashing and the first line of reply was, well, they've got stale odds all over the bet tracker. Well, I mean, that's kind of misunderstanding how the bet tracker works. We put bets up and we encourage users to put bets up and we don't, monitor them at that point if they get cut and someone comes across them we hope that the user updates the back odds to the new back odds a lot of people don't can't expect everyone to and if nobody does then they're just going to be stale but they were right at the time that they went up um again i can appreciate that it's frustrating and with the golf tracker and the horse tracker we try and do this through bots but the bet tracker is less um dynamic it hasn't got those bots reading the odds essentially because how can you do it when you're expecting users to put the bets up themselves um and on the forum um on this particular day was it the caesar witch um which is a 32 runner race and i was tagged and i was asked when are you fixing the stale odds and i was working on the stale odds now my it skills are along the lines of you know rebooting the i literally am the man that turns things off and turns things on again whilst i try and escalate more serious issues that require proper it knowledge to other people that can do these things and i'm trying to sort of find out where the source is and someone was having a conversation around the bb algo just being wrong just wrong and the confidently on the forum they just said um the expected value has been cal calculated wrong. At the same time that the stale odds were there, so now I've got a second issue going on, and this is where I go into Captain Jack mode of, oh, I'm getting stressed now because, like, we haven't changed the code for calculating expected value. So it's not wrong, but now I need to go and 
check it because you've said that it is and you've sort of said it as a statement on the forum as well so anybody looking at it goes oh well, there's a statement so now i can't trust it and that shouldn't be the case when the code hasn't changed so i went to check it and here's a long answer than i was able to do at the time whilst trying to fix stale odds in the forum the bb algo is an estimation tool we look at previous horse races and we come up with the probability of a horse placing based on their win odds which we can confidently estimate from the exchange win price and the composition of the race the number of runners so in the past we've looked at two million horses and maybe we look at all those horse races that have got exactly 10 runners in them um i'm just going to click away in the background whilst i open up a spreadsheet here because i've got some numbers that's going to be useful but we look at all those horse races that have got 10 horses in them and we look at the horses that are 16 to 1 18 to 1 the exact kind of win price in the past and we say right the probability of that horse finishing in exactly second is this exactly third is this exactly fourth now when you look at the num the frequency of um um runners in a race the overwhelming majority of runners in a race are somewhere between about six and 14 runners like 80 percent of horse races in the last couple of years three years have had that um four runners to 20 runners is 97.4 percent of all races right there's only been 0.265 percent that have had two runners which are so dumb races that's 116 but then over 20 they become even less frequent only 79 races with 21 runners only 41 races with 24 runners and when you hit 30 runners there's only been nine races with 30 runners in the last three years there's only been two races with 40 runners that'd be the grand national you know presumably one of those two years it didn't go ahead because of lockdown or maybe there was a non-runner that bumped it to 39 i don't know but regardless at these races over um 30 runners we have very very few historical races to look at to draw a regression analysis and what this means is the confidence ratings of estimating patterns in probability go way down and we have to draw a line somewhere and on this particular day the line had been drawn at the number of runners in the caesar witch uh, it was our lowest confidence in estimating the probability of a horse finishing in exactly sixth exactly seventh and exactly eighth but because it's such a big race you do get bookies playing six places, seven places, eight places, unusual amounts of places. And this guy was drilling down into the fair odds that we were estimating, and he saw that we had either the same odds for eight places and seven places, or it was slightly more likely that the horse is going to finish in seven places than eight places. That doesn't make logical sense, and I will give you that. It doesn't have to make logical sense, not in big betting data profiles we're only estimating here using pattern recognition and we have very good confidence up to 20 runners and then decreasing confidence from 20 runners to 30 runners and above 30 almost none we probably should have cut the bb algo off and not allowed it to run on the season which we don't allow it to run on the grand national biggest race of the year why doesn't the bb algo run work because we don't have enough data that's why uh we don't have enough data it's an r squared fit that we're looking for that gives us confidence that there's any signal in this pattern recognition of the probability of the place that's the long answer 
Okay, I couldn't explain all of that in the forum for two reasons. One, I was busy looking at the stale odds. And two, I can't get into a discussion of why we build the BB Algo like this. We know it's profitable over tens of thousands of horses. We always, there evidence that it's more profitable than using exchange numbers. We're so confident in how probable, uh, how confident it is. So my answer to the guy on the forum was, um, please, could you use support if you want to have a discussion about the calculation of the BB algo? And he said to me, I don't want to use support. I want you to admit that it's wrong. And my stress levels went through the roof. And then he just did a laughing emoji to me um, because, you know, um, I think I asked him one more time to use support and his reply to that was a laughing emoji. And then I just booted him. I'd had enough. He was gone. It was like, one strike, you're out. Not even a warning. You're gone. I can't be asked this. If, you, if, you, if he then cancels his bookie bashing subscription as a result of that, I'm glad. To, I, I'm happier without him. I'm happier without his subscription for the next year or two years or anything like that than the grief that he was giving me. I've no idea if he did cancel or not. I don't follow these things up. But um, it's where I sympathize with Captain Jack a little bit. And Duncan's a little bit um, more level-headed because he's actually a robot that was manufactured in a factory in 1976. But uh, I'm a little bit more hot-headed and emotional and unable to deal with this at the time. And mostly because I was trying to get things working and shortly afterwards they did start working but it wasn't the time or the place if you want to know more about the confidence about the bb algo there's something in frequently asked questions that's accessible to both bookie bashing and non-bookie bashing members that explains where when we have confidence in it when we have less confidence in it why it might seem illogical sometimes and sometimes not um, and honestly, if you've got a question or a bit of feedback, I'd rather you can just I answer 100 percent of emails and support tickets that are sent to me. So just ask me, but ask me directly. Don't tag me on the forum because I can't do it on the forum. It's inappropriate. It doesn't work. It just causes an argument. Historically, we nearly closed um, Discord down because of the amount of sort of negativity and arguments that were going on there. But, um, you know, I wanted to close it down, persuaded by Duncan and Lee to keep it open. But that's why, you know. Yeah. So, uh, okay, that's those bits of feedback um then we moved on to discussion about the bet tracker and this is something that i put my hands in the air and i don't know the right what well, answer to this i don't know if there is a right answer so there's probably like a least worst answer which is never a good position to be in but that's probably what we have to run in run with okay um so this has been mentioned by a couple of people um, first of all, here's an email through from somebody else that got booted from Discord recently because a couple of things. One, we got to the point where we're like, we need to start removing people that just constantly bring negativity to the forums. Um, either just because they're negative people or because they want to sort of publicly announce that the game is dead, which you see on like a daily basis because they want to put people off. Um or things like this, you know? And so we also, by the way, we did a review of people that were on Discord and quite a few didn't have bookie bashing memberships because there's people joining and leaving all of the time and God knows how some the old timers got on. Um, so, a lot, you know, if you ever look at the number of people on Discord and go, well, that's indicative of the size of the bookie bashing membership. Well, in the past, there were way more people on Discord than had bookie bashing memberships. And kind of what was odd 
was some of the people that were generating the negativity on Discord didn't even pay for a bookie bashing membership. So we were just allowing them to damage the business without providing anything to that. So we had to go through a process of like automating that and just making sure that everybody on Discord has a current bookie bashing subscription. And now a bot manages that for us. So like if you cancel and then join in a month's time, within like an hour, the bot will have run its script and worked out that you you get to belong to Discord again and it will join you. And if you cancel, it will boot you and blah, blah, blah. You don't need to know this, but just sort of some confidence now that we're not getting some bad actors on the forum. So we booted somebody. Um, uh, he sent us an email. Um, uh, I feel like a warning would have been better since I've spent £2,500 on fees since I joined Bookie Bashing. First, first things first, right? Every penny that you've spent on Bookie Bashing goes into staff costs, running costs, server costs, IT costs, and all of that. It's what it, like So had you not spent that money then Bookie Bashing wouldn't have existed. So that wasn't a favor. No one's got rich off you spending that money. That's the that's the business costs of this, okay? N don't need to know exact numbers, but running until just a f two or three years ago, Bookie Bashing ran at a loss, and there was no guarantee that those losses would have been recouped. So Bookie Bashing was funded through profits Duncan and myself had made out of professional betting. We were able to invest time money resource into the company just because we had a little bit of spare cash because we'd done quite well but there was no there was no guarantee we were going to see that back and um when we when anyone says well i've spent money on you and therefore i deserve something well in all honesty the money that you spent allowed you to get the edges that you got over that period of time it's almost like going to a restaurant and saying i've eaten with you every week for the last three years and so i've spent three thousand pounds you owe me blah 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 i was like well it costs money to buy that food so i'm not sure how much i owe you anyway he goes on um i was actively trying to stop all the oversharing on the server one of the reasons this guy was booted is because he was actively telling people to delete their posts and not share three years ago there were 100 members not a thousand um Right, there, three years ago, there weren't 100 members, okay? Three years ago, there were a few hundred members. Uh, I, 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 I don't have the precise numbers in front of me because I don't follow them, but um, in the region of 400 to 600, and it fluctuates massively, right? A lot of people leave when they get restricted. A lot of people leave when they go on downswings of variants. And then people join, but we, we seem to have periods where people join and then periods where it's very, very quiet. And so there is some fluctuation in membership levels. Generally, when somebody says something positive about us somewhere, we do generate a little bit of traffic coming in. And that replaces the people that are left. And it's generally, it fluctuates and stays roughly the same. I mean, obviously, some if 10 people join next week, that might be more. If no people join, it'll be less. And so it does fluctuate, but it's generally no different just now than it was three years ago. So there aren't a 1,000 members now, and there weren't a 100 members three years ago. I think it feels like it looks like it gets bigger because you see people see new names on the forum but they don't consider how many people have left. So like you might have 50 people leave, 40 people join, and then people think, well, that's just 40 new people. It's getting too big. It's getting too big. Um, 
now all now discord is just killing all our edges like the sky one percent and further to this all the bet tracker bets which we can all find ourselves are being leaked to match betting sites making the whole process pointless okay so maybe consider closing the bet tracker and maybe consider closing discord um i have a lot of friends in the bookie bashing community and all long-term members like myself feel this way now putting aside the sort of logical fallacy the fallacious argument used there that um everyone else thinks the same way as me and therefore you're wrong um which is a cheeky way of getting your point across i think um i'm not i'm not just going to dismiss this because i do need to understand if there is any any value in the context of the points being made here especially the bet tracker so what's the bet tracker bookie bashing we have horse racing tracker shop coupon tracker combo bets tracker golf tracker the only tracker that's different really is the bet tracker um it's a its function is a catch-all area for boosts but also standard market bets it serves as a private tracker for those that want to use private trackers. They put their bets up and they track them. But also we've got a team. And since we've been around, we've always um, put a few of the headline boosts up on the bet tracker every day. Our team does this. It serves a couple of functions. First of all, you know, if you're betting in Bedfred shops, you can have some confidence that They've got £100 limits there, and Bookie Bashing, every single morning, has loaded them all up onto the shop tracker and worked them all out. And, you know, if you're short on time, you can literally walk into a shop, get up in your bet tracker, filter it by shop, filter it by bet Fred, and you just know the best bets and the good bets and the bad bets to bet on. Similarly, William Hill and SSBTs at William Hill work exactly the same way. Um, And, the you know, with... Fred's very much the exception because in shops you can get £100 in a lot of those boosts and they, they can start to be worthwhile. Where they're not worthwhile, a lot of the Skybet headline ones, Salah boosted to have a shot on target from 1 to 7 to evens, it's going to be max £10. Betway, I think it's like max £8 or something like that. And you also, you're just going to get restricted quite quickly betting on those. Now, some people do bet on them and... They either have access to a lot of accounts or sooner rather than later they find themselves restricted and they don't bet on them. There's certainly not a long-term sustainable way of betting. A lot of them go on the tracker for two reasons that are not to do with highlighting that there is a 140% boost over at Betway. Um, the first reason is um, there's a lot of value to be had in but knowing that these boosts are big for bias on the exchange because... The match betters will be out there holding those exchange back prices high. There'll be more layers than backers in these weird markets. I saw one the other week. Was it two plus for Griezmann on a Sunday night? And that market in that match, in the Atletico Madrid match, had more money traded in it than the AGS market or the FGS market because it was just biased towards layers. And so the back price was being held up. And so I could quickly go on to my bet tracker on a Sunday night, see that betway boost, pop myself over to the exchange. Oh, look, I can get a really good price on Griezmann on the exchange. And it took me two seconds to find that bet, right? So I didn't have to mess around 
with my tools and go through the game. The tools are there and I could do it, but I was short on time and it was very useful for me. Second thing we use it for is accountability, benchmarking and ROI. So we take a lot of bets and instead of just going, trust us, these are right, we benchmark every single bet on the bet tracker and are recording, okay? How it works kind of is that if it's plus EV, when we put on the tracker, we record it. If it steams in, we do. We have no way of knowing because there's no automation there. So we only record the bets that are plus EV at the time that we put them up. Um, and if they drift, we still record them, okay? So it's like if we put them up and it was plus EV and it drifted to negative EV by the time it kicks off, well, we still record that as a bet that we need to know the ROI of. And so we now have a bet history of like 30,000 odd bets over years and years. And we can show that certain win both halves and match odds on both teams to score. AGS, FGS, all of this kind of thing is accounted for. It, we have accountability. We're not just putting them up and saying they're good. We're tracking thousands of bets and making sure that they're good. Now... That's the first thing, benchmarking and accountability. And the second thing is it actually highlights to those less familiar with the tools that we have that these things are possible. So you might not know that we have tools that will do the scorecast. We might, you might not know that we have tools that do first try scorer and rugby and things like that. Shush now, he doesn't know. Um and so by pushing them onto the bet tracker, it gives them a little bit of exposure. And so you might look, look at that, not knowing, and go, oh, I wonder where this came from. And you go and explore the tools. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is there are some people that are just short on time and they don't care. They don't care about the tools, but they're short on time. So the reason the bet tracker exists is all of the above. Those people that are short on time, benchmarking accountability, the boosts that you can get on, those kind of things. But I get that for since the beginning of time, some people take these boosts and they just post them on the match betting forums and they get cut. Um, they get and they're maybe getting cut a little bit quicker. And I, I unfortunately get the impression that old Stoffel pants his team are taking our bet tracker and just putting them on his forum and then they've got their new exchange and they're getting all of the value over there from their own members. I mean, absolute charlatans, but there you go. And if you're just using the tools and you've got some time and you're an experienced member, that's quite annoying. That's quite annoying because by highlighting them, they are getting cut a little bit quicker. And I can now... There is an argument that, well, just get rid of it. So what happens if we just get rid of it? Well, we're going to piss off and annoy the people that rely on it. Those that are short on time. Those that have access to bookmakers and like betting on all of these boots. Those guys are going to be pretty annoyed. Also, if anyone new comes through the door and there's no bet tracker and they're not going to bother looking at the tools, they'll never explore and find out that there are edges in FGS, AGS, 2+, 3+, plus, plus, first try scorer, hand, handicaps and all of those kind of things and scorecasts and win both halves and so on and so forth and shots and target. They're just not going to go through that exploratory mechanism because they're not interested in personal development. They just want to be told the back odds. So, so we lose them as well. And so we now have a, a tangible cost to getting rid of the bet tracker. And that tangible cost is we will lose some of our membership base. 
So we will reduce the amount of income that we have coming in. Going back to what was mentioned in this email, in the past three years ago, we ran at a loss. These days, we run at break-even, break okay? Any money that happens to be left over, which is never a lot, goes into R&D, research and development, new tools, coming around all of the time, and that's it. So here's the risk of getting rid of the bet tracker. We protect the value for some of the more disciplined, knowledgeable bettors, experienced guys, and they get an easier time of getting on bets. And we lose some of the less experienced guys that rely on it and never get to explore the tools as a result of getting rid of it. So we benefit the experienced old timers, but we get no extra income from that benefit. We just bet they just get extra income. And, you know, as a service, that should be good. But then the cost is we lose people. What happens if we lose people? There's then a risk that we can't, we have no business continuity. So it really is heads we lose, tails we lose. Um, I do not know the answer to the question of what to do with the bet tracker. I do not know if it's worth getting rid of or not. I see both arguments. If you are an old-time member and you can email in to tom at bookiebashing.net with some reason arguments and don't use the, I've got a lot of friends that say um, think the same way because I'll just bin those emails, of... Both sides, I'd like to know your cons and your pros. Don't just give me cons, because then I don't think that you've looked at the bigger picture if you've done that. Give me the cons and the pros, and then an overall summary of what you would like to see. And I might go through a consultation. I feel like doing a poll is going to be a little bit one-sided, because there's very much more feeling of the people that want to get rid of it than the people that want to keep it, and so I won't get a balanced argument from that. So all I'm asking for is, does a bet tracker service an overall positive gain in 2023 or are the actions of highlighting the bet tracker bets too early to people and we don't highlight any unless it's 18 hours before kickoff or earlier we got rid of that before so you'll never see one for tomorrow but even then are bets getting cut too quickly are they now being overshared have things just changed so much that there is no longer any value in this because at the end of the day we really should be focusing on things in standard markets as we are in every other tracker and tool. Boosts are really kind of kindergarten advantage play, if you like. And you could go out and find them yourself. Uh, but maybe there are lots of people out there that really rely on Bucky Bashing to do that for them. And I want to hear from you. If you're one of them, please get in touch. So having said all of that, I still have sympathy with Captain Jack Andrews, but I want to know, one, why they're working 18, 20-hour days, because that's never, like, you should just not be doing that and thinking that you've got a business that is manageable and is sustainable. But secondly, who are these investors? Who are the investors? We never had investors. Can we have some investors? Let's finish the Bashcast with story time today. Um... I'm always interested in a couple of different things, game theory and edges, and also the morals around edges. I mean, you know, especially in the world of gambling, are we playing within the rules? Are the rules clearly defined? Are there any blurred lines? You know, on the exchanges, it's your bet against somebody else's peer-to-peer -peer betting. But what if you think the odds are 18.5 and you stick the odds up at 1.85 because you're hoping somebody misses the decimal point? Are you playing 
within the rules, technically, but then maybe you're trying to exploit something that isn't particularly moral. I have seen this in the past, and I don't like seeing it. I don't like think those trades should necessarily go through. But what if it was 8.5? That's someone that may or may not be trying to exploit someone missing off the one. Perhaps they have modelled it to half the probability or twice the probability, and they're just sticking up, up you know, 8.5. When you make it 18.5, I don't know. That's where it becomes blurry. So I find these problems very interesting. I also find game theory, um, and specifically the prisoner's dilemma in game theory, always very interesting. And there's a real-world story, a situation that happened between two chaps, and they had to play a game of Prisoner's Dilemma, and they both had to play it optimally because at stake wasn't money, but actually their freedom. Whether they went to jail or not depended on how they played the game. So what is Prisoner's Dilemma? Prisoner's Dilemma is a game theory thought experiment that involves two rational agents, you and me, each of whom can cooperate for their mutual benefit, but also each of whom can betray their partner for individual reward. So what do you do? Do you do you go for the mutual benefit solution or do you try and benefit a little bit more yourself, sacrificing any benefit to your partner? Um, there's a really good YouTube video with Jasper Carrot in his game show, uh, Golden Balls. So this was a game show which sort of personified the um, the game theory prisoner's dilemma by, at the end of the game, um, two contestants are sat across each other and you can either pick the split ball or the steel ball. And let's say there's £100,000 down. If you both take split, you split the money. If one of you takes steel and the other split, then that person gets all the money and if you both do steal, you get nothing, right? And there was one episode, you can Google this, it's one of the greatest moments on television game show history. So if you go to YouTube and Google Golden Balls, £100,000, I think complete end round part two, and you'll see a guy, bald head, mustache, and a young lady, and um, they're having a conversation about whether they're going to split or steal, and they're both in agreement that they're going to split it. And she's so convincing. And she's like, we're not going to, you're not going to steal it. Come on, let's just split it and walk away. And it, the both of them, you can sort of, you know, you don't really know if they're lying or not for personal gain, but you kind of think they both are. And then they both pick the ball up to show what they've done. And the lady has stolen it. She was completely making it all up. And the guy just drops his head. Go to a YouTube of that because it's really entertaining to watch. That's the kind of prisoner's dilemma. Are you both going to work together or are you going to try and sort of work on your own to benefit yourself? So um, there are four possible outcomes for the prisoners and the prisoner's dilemma for you and me. Okay. Um, um, I, so the prisoner's dilemma, actual game theory, getting away from golden balls, is um, you and me. We're in a criminal gang. We're arrested and we're imprisoned. We're in solitary confinement, so we can't speak to each other, unlike Golden Balls. Um, the police don't have enough evidence to convict us. They plan to sentence both of us to a year on in prison. Um, but simultaneously, the police officers offer each prisoner a 
Faustian bargain, and that is that if I testify against you, then I will go free and you will get three years in prison. Or if you testify against me, then vice versa. If we both testify against each other, we'll get two years and we're given a little bit of time to think this over. But in no case may either of us learn what the other one has decided to do prior to our decision. Very important. Okay. So either we both stay silent and we get one year in prison. I testify against you and you stay silent and I go free and you get three years. Or vice versa. And you go free and I get three years. Or we both testify against each other and we get two years. So that's the premise behind Prisoner's Dilemma. Now, let's apply this to a story that happened in real life. A couple of chaps, and before we come to them, had found an edge. And I want to talk about the edge, first of all. The edge was in video poker. If you've ever been to Las Vegas, video poker, super popular. Like, it's almost, it's the Las Vegas version of the old 1980s pub fruit machine. They're just everywhere in Las Vegas. And you go there, and on a very basic level, you put a pound in, and you're given five cards, and you can discard anywhere from zero to five cards. And then you'll get a payout, which will be either nothing if you've got no hand. Um, and depending on the variant of poker you're playing, it might start as um, a pair gets a small payout, two pair, a little bit larger, all the way up to a royal flush gets like the jackpot payout. Okay, pretty simple premise playing by the rules of poker. And there's 100,000 different variations of it. And sometimes you get bigger payouts, but you'll need to qualify with a slightly bigger hand. And sometimes you can play multiple games at the same time. And crucially for this story, you can change denominations. So you can maybe play at one cent a hand, 50 cent a hand, $100 a hand, you know, so at the bankroll that suits you. Now, the, one of the most popular poker video poker games was the Game King video poker machine. And for years and years, these were available. And if you went to Las Vegas and played the Game King video poker machine, which if you played any video poker in Las Vegas between 2000 and 2009, you almost certainly would have been playing one of these Game King ones because they were the most popular variant. You were actually sitting on a machine that had a bug. And if you knew about the bug in the code, you could have used it during this time. And if you'd used it once or twice, you pretty much could access some free money. And if you'd used it only once or twice, you could have just walked away with that. And you probably never, ever would have been caught. Where, of course, people get caught is where they get greedy. So what was the bug, right? So what you need to do is, first of all, find a Game King video poker machine configured for multi-denomination play. That means that it's not just a pound or a dollar ago, a hand. You need to be able to change it from one cent to 20 cents to 50 cents to a dollar to five dollars. So the multi-denomination is key to the bug, okay? Um, second of all, you've got to make sure that the double op option is enabled because this is an option where you can maybe double your winnings or lose it all after you've won. And some machines, this is turned off, so you want to make sure it's turned on. And if it's not turned on, you can ask the attendant to do that. Then put some money into the machine and start playing on the lowest denomination, right? So a machine, uh, I don't think a machine runs from one cent to $20. You get sort of low stakes machines and high stakes machines. So perhaps a machine might go one, two, five, ten, twenty, 10, 20, right? So you'd be playing the one, 
dollar per credit on this machine. Load up any game variant, you know, like triple, double bonus poker. Really just load, play anything because there are loads of different game variants, as mentioned. Some where the qualifying hand is a little bit higher, but then you might get higher payouts and things like that. And just keep on playing at $1 level until you win a big hand. So at $1 level on triple double bonus poker, you'd win $800 for a royal flush. So just sit there forever, for hours and hours, drinking your drink until you get your royal flush. And congratulations to you, you've won $800 for your royal flush. But in all honesty, with the RTP of the machine, I mean, video poker has quite a low RTP, but you're still going to be in the long run, down, trying to chase down this Royal Flush. But here's where the bug came in, and it was in all these machines for all these years, and so few people knew about it. In fact, only two knew about it before that the authorities know of, really. So, your Royal Flush is showing $800. Yeah, you won, but you haven't clicked the Cash Out button. Now, before you click the Cash Out button, go and change games. Click more games. It's almost like you're storing the cash out in the background. Um, like perhaps if you want to go on a bonus hunt on some slots, you might sort of load up a game. And then as soon as you qualify for a feature bonus, you just close it down and go and play another game. Uh, in the past, there's, that's been a sort of tactic for stashing money. And there were maybe ways of exploiting some old bonuses by stashing money in feature run bonuses and things like that. And it's also used by YouTubers just to sort of, you know, store up a load of features and that way you don't have to watch a load of boring normal play. And then, you know, once you've got 10 features, you just go back to those games. You've got to make sure you remember which games you've got your feature on. You can just load them up and you get 10 features in a row, right? So like that, just save your game without cashing it out in the background. And now go to more games and select a different game variant because there's loads of different video poker variants um make sure there's more money in the machine so that you're still playing with new money it's not taking it out of the balance that could have been cashed out from that old game um and now let's play maximum denomination so we were playing one dollar which gave us eight hundred dollars for a roll flush now we're going to play ten dollars okay and play ten dollars per credit and return to your original game after a few hands and press the cash out button. And all of a sudden, your cash out is being cashed out at the new denomination level. You're now, your $800 is now $8,000, okay? So what you were able to do was play the game at $1, and as soon as you won the jackpot by this sequence of buttons moving from the game to another variant of poker, playing a couple of hands and then moving back your original cash out. And like everyone wins the jackpot and then they just immediately cash out. And this is why probably no one saw it. But then come back and your cash out is going to be at the new level. So imagine like you're playing a, you know, online slot and you're playing it at 10p a line and then all of a sudden you win big and you can just change that to $10 a line. It's exactly the same thing or £10 a line. So you get your jackpot of $8,000 um, and then you wait for the slot attendant to show up and as far as the slot attendant can see, um, you were always paying on $10. There's nothing to show that you were ever playing on $1. The machine shows 
stakes, $10 spin, $10 hand, $8,000 jackpot payout. There's nothing out of hand that the attendant can see, and so you get paid out your $8,000 jackpot. So, on to our protagonists. Um, John Kane and Andrew Nestor were the names of the two chaps. Now, these chaps played a lot of video poker and they lost a lot of money on them, right? Um, John Kane was the protagonist um, and Andrew Nestor was 13 years younger than him. So John Kane was 52 years old. Andrew Nestor was 13 years old. 13, 13 years younger, 39 years old. Um, Nesta had lost like $20,000 a year for six years playing video poker. Kane had lost a lot of money, the older guy. And um, Andrew Kane was just messing around one day playing a video poker machine at some random service station. And he was hitting a few buttons and he noticed that after changing the game and the denomination and coming back, he was able to get paid out at the higher level. And he was actually quite honest about it. He got the attendant over and he told the attendant, look, you know, I didn't win this money. And the attendant just ignored the error, thought he was joking and paid him the money. So he then realized what is going on here? And he phoned his friend, Andrew Nestor, who he played a lot of video poker with. And he said, something weird happened. Can we go and investigate it? Um, so they ended up buying a machine and putting it in their house and playing it over and over again until they figured out the series of button presses that got them this payout. But what they didn't know is that it only existed with the double up feature enabled now the double up feature was enabled in their house but then they would hit the casinos and they realized that sometimes they would win and sometimes they would lose and they couldn't work out the pattern so they wanted to stick to the machine that won but there was only a very limited number of these ones with the double up initiated on it and they didn't want to be too obvious so they had to sort of figure out why this machine was paying out and why the others weren't. And they did finally figure out that it was the double up feature that needed to be activated. So they both now knew that they were how to exactly set the machine up and the button presses to do it. And they went on a massive run where they ended up falling out with each other because they wanted to um, split it 50-50 because, of course, you've still got a little bit of variance in hitting the jackpot in the first place. Um, and when they started to win, um, Kane was very worried about the taxes that he would have to pay on his winnings, which you do have to worry about over in America. And so he didn't want to split it 50-50. He wanted to wait for a year, pay his taxes, and then split what was left over 50-50. And the two of them ended up having a big falling out. And when they had a big falling out, they went their different ways. And... Nesta is just hitting every single casino he could do until he finds a machine that's got four deuces on it, which is a good enough hand, four of a kind, and like the four of clubs. Now, that had actually been left there by a friend of his he'd brought to the casino because what he was doing is he was trying to avoid his taxes by bringing friends to the casino and then letting them play these machines 
And then um, once they hit the jackpot, um, they would sort of leave it in position for him. Okay, and so he could sort of lower the amount of money he was overall um, winning. But the eye in the sky had noticed that the person playing the machine had got the four deuces and the four of clubs. And then a little bit afterwards, our Nesta had got four deuces and the four of clubs. And that's just so statistically unlikely to happen. Like, it would be millions and millions of hands. How many permutations of poker hands are there? How many permutations of poker hands are there? Um, there are 2,598,960 possible hands of poker, right? So for two of the same hands to be on the same machine in a very short period of time, was his downfall? And um, they kind of realized that Kane had won more than $500,000 from eight different casinos, including taking the win for $225,240. And through reviewing his associates and um, reviewing his play, um, and, you know, the machines were taken away to the Nevada Gaming Controls Board Technology Division into a back room where the young whiz kids sort of reversed engineered all of the play and everything on it. They figured out that what he was doing was against, well, possibly against the rules. And some big FBI agents with big guns burst through his doors with AR-15, stuck them in his face and said, get on the floor. And he was arrested. And Kane was arrested as well. And they were taken to jail. And then it was on to the federal government to see if they could bring a case to them. And this is where it becomes quite interesting. Because the lawyers for the two chaps, our friends, our protagonists in this story, would argue that they were just playing the game that was put in front of them. And the Las Vegas prosecutors were saying that through... Conspiracy and violations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, 1986, they were hacking the system. So that it was unauthorized access by de definition. And the defense attorneys were saying this should be dismissed because the game king allowed the players to do this on their interface and it wasn't authorized. It was authorized access. And so... It comes down to, was this authorised access of the game or was this unauthorised access of the game? If it was unauthorised access, then they were hacking the system. But really all they were doing was pressing buttons that they were allowed to press by the interface of the game. And the trial went on for 18 months and the prosecutors started to realise that they had, in poker, what is known as a weak hand and as the trial date approached, the feds made Kane and Nesta separate but identical offers. And this was their prisoner's dilemma. The first one to agree to testify against the other one would walk away with five years probation and no jail time. And the other one would go to jail. So you and me have done this scam. What are you going to do? Are you going to say that you're going to testify against me? Are you, am I going to say that I'm going to testify against you? If we both stay silent, we've got five years probation, but we don't go to jail. But I 
could go to jail if you testify against me and therefore I might reduce my jail time if I testify against you. What would you do? Well, thankfully, because they were advantage players, Kane and Nesta both refused the offer. And a few months later, the Justice Department dropped the last of the charges and they were free and they didn't even have any probation. And that all came down to them playing the prisoner's dilemma optimally. Whether you could argue the morality of what they were doing was fair game or not really comes down to your perspective. Is that kind of advantage play cheating? Who is affected by it? You know, the casino, perhaps the maker of the video game. You could maybe argue in a roundabout way that because a machine goes from making $15,000 a month to losing $50,000 a month, that there is less concession around there for other people. So is there crime against humanity making less concessions and less value available for everyone else around them? In which case, where does it stand on the morality ladder then? And my only wonder is, what would Sam Stoffel do if he had found this bug before anybody else? Whatever it is you're doing this weekend, please make sure you're betting on value. And if you're not, you know the cheat codes to activate the jackpot at a higher denomination. This is Tom, signing out. (laughs) 